As we're fast approaching Hanukkah, I'd like to share a vart with you that I thought of. We know that the most famous question um, when entering the airspace of Hanukkah is the question of the Beis Yasef. And the Beis Yasef asks, why is it that we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days? We know that it's true that the Menorah burned for eight nights when they found that miraculous Pach Hashemen, but there was enough oil, after all, in that cruise to last for one night. <coughs> so the truth is that when we speak about the miracle of the oil lasting longer than it should have, it really only lasted seven days longer than it should have because one day was already, we had the oil for one day. So why are we celebrating Hanukkah for eight days when we should be celebrating it for seven if we're really celebrating it for the miracle of the Pach Hashemin? That's the Beis Yosef's question. He gives a few terutsim of his own. And, but it didn't end there. You know, when, when Klal Yisrael, when Tamid Chachamim have a challenge... So everybody, you know, likes to respond to the challenge. So there are svarim that you could buy in the stores that have hundreds and hundreds of answers to this question of the Beis Yosef. There's a sefer that used to be popular called Ner Lamea, which is a, a sefer that had a hundred answers to this question. And that was like, wow, a hundred answers. But today, they, everything is new and improved. Today, I think you can buy a saver that has 500 answers to the Beis Yosef's question. So if 500 Teirutsim were given, I figure it can't hurt to add one more. The only problem is, chances are that anything you say is probably going to be already in that safer in one form or another, but maybe not. Maybe not. Hanukkah, we know, has two nisim. We're celebrating or being Mahalal HaKadosh Baruch Hu for two great miracles that took place during that kufa in Jewish history. The first, of course, was the nase of the Nitzachain of the Melchama. There was a war that was a lopsided battle between the mighty Syrian Greek army, the Syrian army who came into Eretz Yisrael, and they were very powerful and very strong and very wicked and brutal. And then a band of Jews, not just some Jews, but rabbis, Tamid Chachamim of Hakim, Matisyob and Yechanan Kayin Gadol, Kayhanim Gedayim, pure people, fine people, upright, hidden, Sadikim Gemurim, they decided, a few of them, maybe five, got together and they said, we can't allow this to happen. We can't allow Eretz Yisrael to be overrun by these bandits. And we can't allow their influence to pervade our society. They had entered into the Kedesh HaKadoshim and defiled it. We have to do something. We have to be Meister Nefesh. We have to fight the good fight. Matisyo, Bonov, they started engaging in Mohamma against the Syrian Greek army, and wouldn't you know it, but they won. That was miracle number one. The second mace was that when they came into the Beis Hamikdash after having vanquished their enemy, and they, they kicked them out of the Beis Hamikdash, and they now were able to retake the Harabayas and the, the Heichal. So they didn't find anything to light the Menorah with. They wanted to be Mekayim the Mitzvah anew of lighting the Menorah in the Heichal, but all the oil was defiled, was contaminated by the enemy who did terrible things in the, in the Beis HaMikdash at that time. And miraculously, they found a pach shemen, a jug of oil that had enough to light for one night. And as we said before, it lasted for eight nights. 
And for these two miracles, Klal Yisrael was Kaveya, that there should be an eight-day Yomtev of Hanukkah that we don't fast on, and we don't give Hespedim on, and that we were Kaveya v'asom halal v'haydah. Halal v'haydah. These are days of halal and haydah. Praise. Thanksgiving to the Rabbi Shalom over these two miracles. So the Maral asks a very basic question. The Maral has a beautiful sefer on Hanukkah. It's called Ner Mitzvah. And in it he asks in Parak Bays, why do we need that second miracle? Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu have to perform another miracle? And that became subsumed in the festival of Hanukkah, that became part and parcel of our Yantev. That too we're howling, we're mahalo for. Halal is something that happens as a result of Yeshua Mitzara. <coughs> this is what the Gemara in Avi Psachim says, that al kol tzara v'tzara shalai any time Kral Yisrael has a tzara that befalls them. And that they need Akadish Baruch Yeshua and miraculously Akadish Baruch responds. When that happens, we have an obligation to sing Hallel to the Rabbi Nishalom. But that's only for Yeshua. That's only when our lives were threatened, when an enemy rises up against us and tries to destroy us. In response, Akadish Baruch saves us. That's a day that requires hallow. So for the first miracle of the Nesan Yitzchak, and that was a real Yeshua, we were in desperate, dire circumstances. Our whole future, our whole present was really in jeopardy. Physically, spiritually, morally, everything was, everything was up in the air at that point. HaKadosh Baruch came and miraculously stood by our side and saved us. That's Halavaydah, that we understand, says the Maral. But why did we need the miracle of HaKashem and all together? What was the point of that miracle? What did they do? They wanted to do a mitzvah. It's a very big mitzvah to light the menorah in the Heichal, that's true. But let's say that miracle had not happened. They weren't lighting that Menorah for many years already since the time that the Hashman, that the Yibanim came and and came into the base of Mikdash and stopped us from doing that. I don't know exactly how long it was, but it was a period of time that we were lighting the Menorah. So we were getting new oil ready for relighting it. So it would take another week. What's another week? Why not the Shparu have to make a miracle at this point? of the Pach Hashem, and why are we mahalo for that miracle? It's a mitzvah. It's not a hatzalah, it's a mitzvah. Mitzvahs are great, but because we have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, Kedosh Baruch gives us a miraculous opportunity to perform a mitzvah, which is wonderful, it's beautiful, but why are we mahalo for that? If a person, let's say, you know, loses his tefillin, and, uh, you know, and then he finds his tefillin, uh, now I have the opportunity to do my mitzvah again. You didn't have shmur matzahs, and now all of a sudden, you know, out of the blue, you get shmur matzahs. You have to say hallow for that. You do a mitzvah. If you could do it, great. If you don't, okay. But like, it's not something you need to be mahalo for. So the fact that we have the opportunity to light the menorah again is very nice. It's a great story. But why is that something that we're mahalo for? And why was it necessary altogether to bring a miracle for that? The Maral says a tarot, which is hafle bafela. It's a tema, the Maral's tarot. Listen to what he says. The Maral says, had it only been for that first miracle, if only HaKadosh Baruch Hu would have given us the nace of the Nitzachan in the Melchama, Klal Yisrael may not have viewed that as a miracle. Klal Yisrael may have said, oh wow, that's a military victory. It's not something that's superhuman. It's not something that's super miraculous. It's Teva. The Russian of the Maral is She Iker Mashakovu Mechanika Bishvoshay Minatres Yevanim, 
The truth is, he said, we're being mahalal, the main purpose of Hanukkah, the nace was the nace of the Nitzach and the Muhammad. But, it didn't look like there was a Nitzach through a nace. And maybe it was only Mikaycham umikvurasam. It was because of the sheer power and the strength of the Maccabim. Maybe that's what gave them the ability to win. That's why after we won the military victory, we went into the Beis HaMikdash and HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us another nace and that was the nace of the Bach Hashemen to show Everything was miraculous. The menorah was just shining a light on the military victory. The main reason for Hanukkah, the Halal, if you'd ask me why do we give Halal to Rabbanishram, the main reason to give Halal is because we won a mighty victory. Militarily. Why do we have the Pach Hashem? And that's to show that the military victory was miraculous and it was not something that was emanating from, from the brute force of Matisio Ivanov. The miracle that Akash Barucho did for us by allowing us to win the war was evident, but it was only evident after the nace of Hashemin. Before the Hashemin, if there wasn't that miracle of the candles burning for an additional seven nights, not so clear that the miracle that the, the victory, the military victory, was anything more than natural. We needed the supernatural menorah to prove and to show that the military victory was also supernatural. This terror to me is half of a fella. Tapella. What is the morale talking about? Could you imagine? Could you imagine? If all of a sudden, you know, a group of us would go up and say, get together after the Shmuz and say, you know what, um, you know, the Russian army is very powerful and, you know, it's doing stuff and it's right next to Israel and who knows what's going to be. Let's go and fight the Russian army in Syria. We'll take them on. We look at each other like, are you crazy? You can't do that. The Russian army, they're so powerful. No, we're going to do it. We're going to go and we're going to do it. And like, all right, we go and we do it. And we win, and that could somehow be misunderstood as being Teva? How in the wildest imagination could anyone believe that? How is it possible for people to honestly say, oh yeah, that band of a couple of Jews of Kayhan and Gedalim were able to go and take down the mighty Syrian army, the, perhaps the greatest, the most battle-hardened army in the world at the time? What's the Maral talking about? We need the Menorah to tell. The Menorah seems like, like nothing compared to a military victory of that size. Today we have a, um, you know, Machon Yerushalayim put out a lot of Svarim on the Maral by Rabbi Hartman, who really, like, everybody owes a, a very big debt of gratitude to both Machon Yerushalayim and Rabbi Hartman for putting out these Svarim because they literally open up the Maral with very copious footnotes on the Gurarie and on many of the other Sifrei Amaral that they're going through systematically. And on this Sefer, Ner Chadash, on Hanukkah, we have it in the base Medrash. If you're interested, it's in the back. It's a very beautiful Sefer to learn on Hanukkah. If you're looking for something to you know, get yourself a little deeper into Hanukkah, that's very highly recommended. And there on the bottom, there was a footnote because Rabbi Hartman was also bothered by this Maral, that how can you say this? We say in Al Anisim that it's Kibayrim Biad Chaloshim and Rabbin Biad Ma'atim. You know, these were super strong warriors. These were real soldiers with real weapons. And these Jews were, you know, running around with maybe a tilim in their hands. How, how can you, you know, misunderstand that in any which way? 
And Rabbi Harman quotes a different morale as he always does. He has encyclopedic, you know, knowledge of all the morales wherever they are, and he always like brings them as references on the bottom anywhere the morale mentions such a thing. And he says the morale really speaks about this in Gurarya and Sefer Bracious, and he says that it could be that it was Bimazlotalia. Something with the mazolis, you know, something with, uh, you know, the stars maybe were shining nicely on the Jewish people at that time, and people could confuse it that way. But I think it's still a power. And so what I wanted to suggest is that just to give us a little understanding, a little time in the morale, how it's possible to somehow believe that a small band of soldiers, of Jewish soldiers, could take down a mighty army. The truth is that that could happen, and it does happen constantly in the history of, of warfare. There has been many, many instances of this happening. Not all wars are symmetrical. That you have, like, you know, United States against Russia, or Germany against, uh, you know, against Russia, or uh, France against England. Like, it's not always two powers that are of equal, you know, standing, and they're duking it out. Many times in history, we find, and we could go back early in the Chumash, to Avraham Avinu, and the four kings, and the five kings, and very often you find that small numbers of people are able to take down armies that are much, much mightier than they are. This is called guerrilla warfare. Not a guerrilla like an animal, it's spelled differently. It's spelled G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, I believe. And it's a Spanish word which means like a, a small war. It's a small war. There are times that people are able, and history bears this out very, very often, it's not uncommon at all, that a small group of people are able to take down a much mightier army. And you know, I, I found there's a, like a, a Jewish history book, it's not a, I wouldn't say it's a from history book, but I looked up there how he touches the miracle of Hanukkah, and he actually uses this term. He says, it took three years, when describing about Matisseo Obanov, it took three years of guerrilla warfare for the revolutionaries to oust the Syrian troops from Palestine. The group known as Maccabees or Hasmoneans rushed to regain control of the Jewish, Holy Jewish Temple in Jerusalem only to find that it had been defiled by the Syrians. So you see that the way that the history books even describe and explain this Muhammad, they don't do it in like a miraculous sense. It's a guerrilla, it's a band of guerrilla warfare. Warriors that were engaged in what's called guerrilla warfare. Now what is guerrilla warfare? So I looked that up. Guerrilla warfare is a strategy that focuses around the use of a small, mobile force competing against a larger, more unwieldy one. The guerrilla focuses on organizing in small units depending on the support of the local population. Tactically, the guerrilla army would avoid any confrontation with large units of enemy troops, but seek and eliminate small groups of soldiers to minimize losses and exhaust the opposing force. Not limiting their targets to personnel, enemy resources are also preferred targets. All of that is to weaken the enemy's strength, to cause the enemy eventually to be unable to prosecute the war any longer, and to force the enemy to withdraw. This is the, it's a, it's a tactic. It's a tactic of war that was spoken about in the early books of warfare by Gaim already, The Art of War, a very early 6th century Asian you know, book of Hada, of the, the, the Chachma of Battle. This is already a known thing, that it's possible, quote-unquote, 
for a small group of soldiers to take down a much larger army. Now, they're not going to fight head-to-head because you can't. You know, five Jews come and, you know, go head-to-head with, with, with 10,000 mightily armed Syrian soldiers. You know, that's, that's completely and that probably is not how it went down. But more likely, they were able to, for three years, come up with different ways to sabotage parts of their army, to weaken their resolve, to break them down, to make them wonder whether or not they'll ever get out of this quagmire. And then eventually the Syrian army made a cheshman that, you know what, this is not worth it for us. Let's just cut and let's, you know, let's withdraw. Let's cut our losses. Let's retreat. Let's move on. We can't do this forever. This is a protracted battle and we can't do this forever. That is already a little glimpse of Derech HaTeva. If we want to inject a little Derech HaTeva to understand what the Maral is talking about, why people would think that it's Shaykh to do, to win such a battle in any way other than it being miraculous, there is a Derech HaTeva. It is possible, believe it or not, and we've seen this. We need not go further back than Vietnam, United States of America, the most powerful nation in the world, went into this this country called Vietnam and for some reason, you know, to fight communism or something and they were in a protracted war there for many years and it created, we, we lost many, many troops and the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, was under a tremendous amount of pressure to pull the troops out. Every day the picketers would protest and they would say, hey, hey, LBJ, how many boys did you kill today? That was, the, that was the protest. There was a constant and steady stream of protesters marching on Washington. we got to get out of Vietnam. Too many soldiers are coming home in body bags. The Russian army, the great Russian army, went into Afghanistan a couple of decades ago. And they, it should be no problem for them to, to, to Afghanistan as a third world country if that. But Afghanistan was able to push back the Russian forces. They retreated. It's possible to take down a great army. It's possible. But that too, of course, when it happens to Klai Yisrael, when Klai Yisrael is able to do this and is able to day by day be able to go and fight and have the Messiris Nefesh of going, not because they're strong, not because they have any dimmion that they're going to be able to take down a superpower like the Vietnamese did and like the people in Afghanistan. And imagine the gaiva of the people, the soldiers in Afghanistan being able to watch the Soviets retreat. That's gaiva. Vietnamese, we kicked out the Americans. That's a tremendous boost of when a Yid is able to do such a thing, a Yid realizes that my ability to endure in battle, my ability that for three long years I'm able to every day go and inflict damage in the enemy and every day be able to fight again and again and again until we're able to push back the forces of evil out of Eretz Yisrael that could be looked at as Teva but HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted us clearly to understand that it's not Teva it's far from Teva the ability that a Yid has to endure longer and stronger and harder comes from the Rabbi Nishayla Eilev Arechev other countries, they come and they attack with Rechev, with chariots, and with horses, and with battalions, and with troops, and with tanks, and with missiles. But when we do war, Kamnu Vanisaidod. We go with Hashem. 
were able to pull down those troops that come against us. Basusim, Uvarechev. How are we able to? They slump and fall. They will go down. The Radak, this is how the Radak learns it. When mighty troops come up against Klai Yisrael, they fall. We don't. We have the ability to get up again. We come. We're able to get up again and again. And we're reinvigorated. We have strength. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us strength. Where does the strength come from? Hashem HaShia Melech HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with us. When Klal Yisrael fights a fight, call it what you want. Call it guerrilla warfare. Call it Teva. But we know that it's all B'derech Meis. We know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is by our side. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving us the strength and the fortitude and the bravery and the courage and the Messiris Nefesh to go and fight till the death to do what's right. And that's a very important Yisai that Hanukkah teaches us. But it required that additional miracle, says the Maral, of the Pach Hashemen to understand this. To not think that we're like the other nations that could use guerrilla warfare successfully and that would work. Guerrilla warfare doesn't work unless HaKadosh Baruch Hu says that it should work. It should not work. People think that it's normal, but it's not normal. The reason why it happens is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is on our side. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us the ability and the strength to persevere. And miraculously, when we don't have any more strength left and we know that it's all over, HaKadosh Baruch Hu saves us, B'yem Karenu. And that's reflected in the Nes L'Pach Hashemen. What was the Pach Hashemen HaKadosh Baruch Hu arranged that we found one pack of oil, enough to last for one night, and it lasted an additional seven nights. Every night they thought it was over, it's over, it's not Shayef. But yet another night it burned, and another night it burned, another night. And again and again and again, until we brought back enough new oil to relight the Menorah without a miracle. But that is reflective of what the Nase of the Muhammad was. That Baruch Hu gives the strength to endure. Again, we run out of strength. We have no gas left in the tank. We can't go up every single day against this mighty army and inflict damage and do a war. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you're right, naturally you can't. But I'm giving you the unnatural ability to do it. You feel you're weak. You feel that you don't have what it takes. But if you call out to me, I'll be here for you. Hey, Makarov, and I'll follow the guy and they're going to fall. V'anachnu, Kamnu, V'anasayi, we get up again and again. That's the beauty of Klal Yisrael. That's the mantra of Klai Yisrael. But it all comes to the revenge of It's not that we're so great. HaKadosh Baruch Hu infuses us with that ability in our neshama to outlast and to outlight and to outburn all of the enemies around us. But the Nase of HaKadosh taught us that the Nase of the Mochama was not natural. You can call it whatever you want, but it wasn't merely brilliant statistics, statistical strategical warfare. It was the ability that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us to outmaneuver our enemies because he decided that that's what the right thing to do was. Yaakov Emden, in, in a letter, not, it's not really in a letter, it's in the to a sitter. He wrote a famous sitter. Yaakov Emden's sitter was at one point, I think, probably the most popular sitter in the world. And it had a running commentary that he wrote on it. As a, I have a, a, a new copy at home of a, a reprint of it. And he writes in the there. Okay, we have it in Yeshiva. So we, in Akdama there, he writes as follows. He says, 
How does the blasphemer who denies Hashem's providence not blush or stand in shame as he contemplates the Jewish nation's unique experience and status in the world? Our people have been in exile for so long like a scattered flock. After all the hardships that we have endured throughout history, we are still more persecuted than any other people. So many mighty nations relentlessly rose up against us, seeking our destruction and annihilation, driven by intense hatred and jealousy. Yet they never succeeded in annihilating us. All of those mighty nations have long been forgotten, hopelessly faded into oblivion. But we who cleave to Hashem are alive today. Despite the length of our exile, we have not lost even one letter or punctuation mark of the written Torah. Likewise, the words of our sages are still with us. Then he writes as follows. What will the wise philosopher answer? Was this all purely by chance? He says, Chai nafshi, by my soul. When I ponder the miracle of our survival, it is in my mind greater than all the miracles and wonders that Hashem performed for our ancestors in Egypt, in the wilderness, and in the land of Eretz Yisrael. The longer the exile persists, the more apparent the miracle becomes. What happened during Hanukkah was really symbolic of what Klal Yisrael is in, in history. Klal Yisrael, as relentless as they were during that time when they were able to fight a Muhammad, Rabban Biad Matim, and win, that's what Klal Yisrael has been doing throughout time. It's not just against the Greeks, and it's not just against the Romans, and it's not just against the Russians and the Polish and the, and the Germans and the Palestinians and the Arabs and all the anti-Semites throughout history, the Cossacks and, and Spain. You don't, I mean, you need a, a list of countries that have not tried to destroy the Jews. It's much, much easier to find a list of, you know, it's a much shorter list of people that were good to the Jews. Like basically one or two countries. There's America, always good to the Jews, and Medina Shel Chesed, and, and Denmark. Denmark, I'm here because of Denmark. My father was, um, he was born in Germany, but his mother was from Denmark, and when Hitler came to power, she told my grandfather, it's time to get out of here. And he said, no, nah, it's going to blow over, you know, like a lot of people thought, she said, no, 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 let's not take a chance, let's move now, and if it blows up, we'll move back to Germany, but let's get out of here. And so they moved to Copenhagen, where her family had like an old shul and a, and a, and a house in, downtown, in the downtown part of the city, and, and when the Jews, when Hitler finally came to Denmark after destroying the whole Europe, one of the last stops was Denmark. There were only a few thousand Jews there, maybe 6,000 Jews, 8,000 Jews perhaps. And Rosh Hashanah night, Arab Rosh Hashanah, there was word spread that Hitler was about to come into Denmark and he was already in Denmark, but he's going to round up the Jews and send them to the concentration camps. And everybody, nobody should go to shul tonight and everybody should go into hiding. And my grandmother was busy, you know, getting ready for Yontif. The table was set beautifully, and um, she was cutting up vegetables in the kitchen to make soup and, and meat and whatever they were preparing for Yontif. And word came, everybody's got to go into hiding. So they all left the Chippazim, and they went into hiding different places. And the Goyim in Denmark, and the king of Denmark, were Meiser Nefesh for the Jews. And they, they hid them in their own homes and they smuggled them across the sea to Sweden, which was a neutral country. And my parents, you know, my, 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 my father and his parents and my uncles and my aunt, they, they went across, and my father's grandmother, who was like a woman in her 90s, she, they went across the sea to Sweden and they stayed there for the duration of the war. And after the war was over, they came back and Denmark accepted them with open arms. That was, my father always said, that was the real test. You know, it's very easy to, to help the Jews get out, you know, because, okay, that's just a nice way of getting rid, getting rid of them. 
but how what was going to happen after the war? But after the war, they were the same nice guyim, and they embraced them, and they took them back, and they welcomed them back. And my uh, my grandfather had a um, a friend who was the head of the Danish police, and he put a seal on the door of their building in, in Denmark, where the shul was, where all the svarim was, the and that you know by order of the Danish police, you're not to no no one's allowed to enter this home. And for some reason, the Nazis respected that sign on the door, and they didn't come in. So when they came back to Denmark after the war was over, they came into the house. Everything was intact. They came into the kitchen, and there was like a jungle of vegetation growing from those cut-up vegetables and the potatoes and whatnot that my grandmother was preparing, Arab Rosh Hashanah. That's what they found when they came back. But everything, all the svarim are still around, and all the all the, the sefeitayra and the silver and the you know everything was mamish b'derech pella. There weren't that many countries like that in, in during the world during World War II. Nothing. All country after country. You know, it's easy to say it's the Nazis, and it was the Nazis. But there were many many willing accomplices. The Lithuanians were the worst, and the Polish were the worst. And the, you know, one country after the other, there were the very few people that really were able to stand up for the Yidden during that time. And that's the story of history, and we see it again repeating itself today. It's no different. Today it might be under, you know, boycotting Israeli products, it's all, whatever they want to do, but it's all a, it's all a very thinly veiled effort at, at hating the Jews and destroying the Jewish people. And there are very few people in this world that really, really have any positive, happy, loving sort of emotions for the Jewish people. There are some, many of them in America, primarily, but very few. That's the story of Hanukkah, but Hanukkah is really a story of Jewish history. That our ability to persevere throughout history against all of the enemies that tried to kill us. These weren't small countries. These were huge countries. These were empires. The Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, Spain and and, and Germany, these were huge superpowers. And they're not here anymore, most of them. There's no such thing as Romans or, you know, or Latins or, you know, or, or Greeks. These were, they, they, they have a country, but they're not the same. There's no, no nothing of them anymore. This is a famous, you know, essay by Mark Twain about, you know, we're not going to read it now, but basically he speaks about how all the other nations of the world, you know, they sprung up, they held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. But the Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmity of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. And he ends the essay with a question. What is the secret of his immortality? How is the Jew eternal? How is the Jew immortal? What is the secret? That's what he asks. It's a good question that Mark Twain asks. And the answer is, it's not because we're so brilliant. It's not because we have so many Nobel Prize winners. It's not because we're so smart and so witty and so strong and so rich and so powerful. There's one reason behind it all, and that's because the Rabbinah Shalom is on our side, period. It's because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here for us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu cares. We're the Amanitchar. He gives us the ability to burn longer and to endure. Like the Neiris and the Menorah and the Mikdash during Hanukkah, like they burned much longer than anyone expected. Everyone expected them to burn out right away, to evaporate, to disintegrate. But it kept on burning, and it was a pillow that it was burning. That's the Jewish people. The Jewish people are people that are immortal, and their immortality is a nace, 
Like Rabbi Yaakov Amnon says, the biggest nace, more than Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and more than the Midbar, whatever you want to say about the great miracles of the Jewish people, the greatest miracle is the fact that we're able to outlast and endure in these days of Golos when everyone wants to destroy us. And we're still here. And we're stronger than ever. And the Gaim can't understand why they can't do away with us. But we're stubborn people and we outlast them. But it's not because of us. We have to understand it's nothing to do with Teva. It's only because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us the Kayak to endure. V'anachnu kamnu v'anisaydum. So Hanukkah is a very important time for us. Because it's not just a, a celebration of, a, of one snapshot of history. It is history. Hanukkah describes and illustrates the story of the Jewish people throughout the Gullus and how we're always able to somehow destroy our enemies because HaKadosh Baruch has the ability to give us or gives us the ability to become Nuvanisayba. And we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu and our Nisim, our Nisim, our Gurus, our We give thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us that ability to do war and to understand that the war is from you. That you are the Baal Mohammed. You are the one that gives us the power to fight the battles. And now, it's not because we have the strongest army. It's my spirit that gives you the ability to win. That's a miracle. And that's how we were able to constantly do every battle throughout history. Now this is interesting if you're into history. And you want to try to figure out like the, the way that the world works on a, on a grand scale. But as far as I'm concerned, I think we should focus a lot more on our personal battles. Because that's also a very, very important thing to give Shevach and Haida to on Hanukkah when we say our Muhammad. It's not just the Muhammad on a grand scale, on a national scale, on a military scale, but it's the personal Muhammad that we deal with every single day. And I'm talking, of course, about the Muhammad Hayetzer, the hardest Muhammad. There was a, a Russian boxer, a Russian Jewish boxer. His name was something like Dmitry Salazar, I think. What's his last name? Salita. Salita, that's right. Dimitri Salita. And he lived in Brooklyn, maybe still does, and he was a Balchuva. And for a while he was the undefeated in his class, whatever, what was he, a lightweight? 27-0. He was like 27-0. He was undefeated. He was unbelievable. And he became a Balchuva. He was from Shemr Shabbos. And he was interviewed in a newspaper. I once read an, an interview with him. I think it was maybe in the Jewish press. And they asked him, of all your opponents, who is, the, who is the hardest opponent? Who is the toughest of those 27 to beat? Who is your toughest opponent? And he laughed. I think I cut this out in the newspaper. He laughed, and he says, those guys were nothing. He says, the greatest opponent that I have is the Eight Sahara. What do you say? And I thought of the Chayvah Salvavis. Chayvah Salvavis says that there was once a, a great conquering hero that comes back to a city and they give him like a ticker tape parade and there's like, you know, people are throwing flowers at him and, has, and his, all of his army troops. But he was the right, she was the general. And he was coming in, he was bulging with his muscles and he's a huge gibar. And everybody's screaming his name and throwing flowers at him and throwing candies at him and like, you know, and, and celebrating, clapping, cheering. And he was walking and he was feeling like on the top of the world. He was the king of the universe. And the Chayvah says that there was like a Zokin Echa, there was like this old Yid that comes and like, you know, he probably came up to his thigh maybe. And he's like, he's like tapping him and like, you know, he thought he had like an itch or something. You know, so he just like sort of like keeps scratching there and he finally looks down and he sees this old yid like, you know, talking to him. He says, Jew, what do you want? 
Don't you see, like, this is my special day. Like, what are you raining on my parade for? What do you want? So he says, I just want to tell you something. He says, what? He says, you have vanquished a small enemy, but now be prepared to do battle with a much greater enemy. And the Chavis Ababis says that doing battle with mortal forces against you is much smaller and much easier than the internal battles of Gaiva and Taiva and Kas and Kina and Chemda. Those are much mightier enemies than you'll ever encounter in the battlefield. That's the hardest challenge. That's what we really need to work on in our personal lives. We're not Baruch Hashem being drafted into any armies. Baruch Hashem, our lives are not in jeopardy. We're not walking around with, with rifles and, and, and berets. But we have our own battles to do, and it's all internal. And those are battles that we need Hanukkah to enlighten us and to allow us to understand how we're going to be able to vanquish that enemy that's so rabbin biyad ma'atim, it's so gibarim biyad halashim that we can't even fathom how strong and how great and how overwhelming the powers of the Sahara are. The Sahara has all of the weapons in his arsenal that he needs against us. And he uses them so brilliantly. And every time we think that we finally, you know, made inroads and we, we had some victories, we discover that suddenly we're, we're much more vulnerable than we ever thought we were. And how can we not quote the letter at this point of Rebhutner that we've spoken about so many times? Ravotna writes to a Talmud and he says to a Talmud the Talmud wrote him a letter we don't have a copy of that letter but the Talmud we see snippets of the letter in Ravotna's response and the Talmud was a good boy he was a Bentaira but he was Nikshal in an Avera we don't know what the Avera was it doesn't matter but he writes a letter to Ravotna and says to him like he confesses to him. I was nifshal nisadeira. I thought that someday I was going to be great. I thought that someday I could be a contender to be a gadol be Israel, to be a gadol b'atayra, to be a real tamad chacham, to be a real tzaddik. But alas, I see that I've fallen and I've let you down. I've let the rabbinic shalom down. I'm guilty. I'm dirty. I'm defiled. I don't know where to turn, I don't know what to do, but all hope is lost, he tells Rav Hutner. And Rav Hutner, beautifully, you have to see this letter, this letter is like mamish, a classic of classics. And Rav Hutner writes to him and he says, first he gives him words of comfort, and then he says that your, conce- your concept of how to be a Tamil Chacham and how to be a Gadol is that when you're sitting on May Menuchas, you know what May Menuchas is? And we sing about it on Shabbos. May Menuchas means you sit by tranquil waters. You know, in our minds, you know, if only everything was nice and smooth, if only everything was nice and tranquil, if I was able to, like, you know, not have any problems, if I didn't have to go to college, and if I could have stayed in Eretz Yisrael, and if I wouldn't have had this issue with my family, and I didn't have that problem with my friend, I didn't have this health concern... And if I'd have some more money in my pocket, and if I'd be able to be a little bit stronger, a little bit smarter, a little bit better, then I'd be the gadol. But now look at me, I have all this, I have these problems, I have these struggles, I have these challenges, I have these tithes, I'm nichshul and averis every, every once in a while. So <laughs> I'm, I'm out of contention to be a gadol. And the Rav Hunter says, you have to know, my beloved, if you want to take a stethoscope to your neshama and see what's making it tick, it's not shalva, it's not perfection, it's not clear skies, 
and a perfect sunshine. That's not what's going to make your neshama be what it's supposed to be. It's not the shalv of the Yetzir HaTayv. El Adafka Melcham It's the time that the Yetzir HaTayv has to actually do battle when things are challenging, when things are rough. When we have a strong Yetzir and we don't know what to do and we feel like we're, we're being choked by the Yetzir And you go and you do a little battle and you fight it a little bit and you say, not tonight. And not now. Maybe later, but not now. And you do these little incremental warfare, do skir- skirmishes with the Yetzirah like that. Rav says that when you can do Mohammed like that, then you could win. He says in English, we say an expression to lose a battle and win the war. It's possible for a person to lose battles just because you lose a battle or two does not in any way, shape, or form mean that you're going to lose the war. You could very easily win the war despite the fact, or maybe specifically because you've lost battles. He says that I promise you that after you lose a couple of battles, you will come out stronger than before and the crown of victory will be perched on your head. You will win the war. He says, the Chacham Mikal Adam Shleim HaMelech writes in Mishlei, a famous Pasuk, Sheva Yipal HaTzadik Vikam. A Tzadik stumbles and falls seven times, Vikam, and he gets up again. He says, the Tipshim, foolish people think that the Pshat in that Pasuk is, that a tzaddik is resilient, that despite the fact that he fell down seven times, he still is able to dust himself off and get up. He says, but the Chachamim say that's not the truth. The real understanding of the Pasuk is that because Sheva Yipal Tzaddik, because the Tzaddik has fallen seven times, because he has been Nikshal and Averis, and he's learned from his mistakes, and he's battled with the Yitzhar, and he knows the enemy, and he knows how great the enemy is, but yet he strives again and again to win. Sheva Yipal Tzaddik to come. The kima of Tzaddik, the ability for the Tzaddik to win the war at the end of the day, the ability for him to endure and outlast the enemy, is dafka with the understanding that sometimes you lose battles, but that does not mean that all hope is lost. Yish is not a word that we should be having in our vocabulary. So many people have thrown everything away prematurely, thinking that all hope was lost. I'm a shaket, I'm a bum, I did this, I did that. How am I going to be able to look in the mirror? How am I able to look in my rabbeim? How am I going to be able to daven tomorrow? How could I, how could I fake it out anymore? I'm not as from as everybody thinks I am. I have a very strong Yitzhahara. Well, guess what? So does everybody else. The greater that you are, the greater you have Yitzhara. Don't think that you're unusual in that huh, my tithes are through the roof. Like nobody else has that in yeshiva. I'm the only guy that has these crazy tithes. It's not true. It's not true. Everybody in their own way has a very strong Yitzhara. And many people are even nichshol once in a while. People that you wouldn't believe are nichshol are nichshol once in a while in a very strong Yitzhara. But the difference between them, the people that succeed and the people that fail, are not whether or not they have Yitzhara or not. The given is that they all have Yitzhara. But now that you have Yitzhara, what do you do with that Yitzhara? Do you just appease the Yitzhara? To become like a chamberlain to the Yitzhahara and say peace in our times and let's make, let's make shalom with him and let's give in and not do battle with him? Or do you fight the good fight and understand that even if you lose some of the battles and it's inevitable that you will lose some of the battles, it's still possible if you're not miyaj and if you have hope in the Rabbi Nishalom and that if you believe and you daven and you work hard and give a little bit of Messiris Nefesh, it's possible to still have a kima. Ba'anachnu kamnu ba'anisayda is not just something when the physical 
military enemies approach us, but also when the Sahara comes against us, with all of his technology and all of his shtick and all of his taivas and all of the things that entice us to want to do it and we want to do it so badly, we're able, Rabbin biad ma'atim, Risham biad sadikim, we can fight the fight and we can endure. Sheva yipol tzadik v'kam. I just saw Ramesha Chorsky, Hashem Yinkam Damov, who was a Rashiva in in Teres Mesha, who was terribly massacred about a little over a year ago. Um, while he was davening with his tefillin on in, in Hanof, I think we all remember those uh, those tragic days. So they honored him recently at a at a dinner. You know, they they they, they dedicated to say Beteres So they made a video of about him and about his life, and they interviewed Talmidim. And one thing stood out from that video that I saw that they showed at the dinner. Um, there was a Talmud who was having battles. He wasn't having battles necessarily with the Sahara. He was having more of a family type of battle. You know, his family wanted him to come home and to, and to maybe go to college, maybe get a job, do something. But they didn't want him to stay in Eretz Yisrael any longer. And he knew that he wanted to stay in Eretz Yisrael in the worst possible way. He knew that his Hatzlacha and learning and that his... His ability to really maximize his potential lay in staying in Eretz Yisrael. Again, that's not something that is, uh, you know, that, that you know necessarily we should take anything from. It's every person has to has to speak to his own Rebbe and, and Rav about how to, you know, personally act in every given way. But this is the personal battle of this Bachar was that he very much wanted to needed to stay in Eretz Yisrael and. And his rabbi was Ramesh Chorsky, and he was speaking to him a lot about advising him about how to do it, how to stay there. And anyway, he had to go home, this Bakr, from Eretz Yisrael to America. And this Bakr was being interviewed. Now today he's a very chashuva, you know, Kyle guy in, in, I don't know, he's learning in Eretz Yisrael still. And he said that, first of all, like, you know, he's delayed a little bit longer. He's having these protracted, you know, discussions with his parents. And um, he called a friend and said, "Can you just tell Rebbe that I'm, you know, that I'm, I still plan on coming back, but it's taking a little bit longer." So, and he said, "Maybe Davin for me." He says, "What are you talking about?" He says, "Rebbe, last night, Thursday night, he took a min- he took the whole shear, and we all he said we're all going to the kaisel. We're going to Davin for Chaim, and they said the whole tillin by the kaisel, and they came back." That's the, the mysterious nafesh of Ramesha Chorsky for Talmud. But he said that I called Rabbi, I called this Ramesha Chorsky, and, you know, and I was telling him you know, how hard it is and how my parents are very you know, insistent that I stay. And I don't know what to do. And he said that my Rabbi said to me, Sheva, Yipal, Sadik, they come. And he kept repeating, to come, to come, to come. He says, you could fall seven times, but ultimately you're going to rise. It might be difficult, but you have to do battle sometimes. If this is the right thing for you to do, then you have to fight the good fight. And that's what we all have to do in our own way. Not to show them against our parents. It's never a good idea to fight against your parents. And that's whoever knows me knows that that's my shita. And I try to always tell guys that whenever you can get out of fighting with your parents, you should. There's absolutely no reason, you know, maybe in very extreme cases, but on the whole, whenever you can have a good, loving, warm relationship with your parents, you must try to foster such a relationship. So I'm not commenting on that specific story, I'm just repeating it anecdotally. But the point is, what you should take from the story is that... And I'm, I'm not questioning Ramesh Chorsky's decision either, of course. I'm not, this is, I don't know the case and it's not my business. But the point is that the come. A person, when, whatever the battle is, you have to keep fighting. And you can't be miyash. Never throw in the towel. That's not a Jewish concept of retreat. 
and surrender and concede. That's not what we do. We fight and we outlast our enemy. Whether it's on a national level or it's an individual level, we have to never stop fighting. Never stop fighting. Sheva, Yifo, Sadik become. That's what we saw from the Menorah. The Menorah teaches us never give up. It had enough to last one night, but that's not all. There's so much more inside. HaKadosh Baruch Hu generates more energy and more power than you ever knew that you had. Just keep on fighting and ultimately you'll win. You don't have to win every war, every battle. You can't win every battle. There will be times that the enemy will have his victory. But that doesn't mean that we should surrender. I failed, but I want to wake up tomorrow and try again. says, let's try it again. Let's try it again. To come. That's what the Hanukkah Menaira was able to shed light in terms of the military victory of Al-Muhammad's. In Melchamas, it's not to have a guerrilla warfare, such an easy expression to use, to wipe away the Rabbeinu from the scene. But we know that it's not guerrilla warfare that wins the battles. It's HaKadosh Baruch Hu deciding that we should win and giving us the fortitude and the strength to outlast our enemies, to endure throughout history. And as individuals also we endure. That's the nace of the Pachashemim. And getting back to the question of the Beis Yosef, that we promised the Teretz for, I think that the Teretz is obvious. Because if the Menorah is Misamel this, if the Menorah symbolizes the ability to endure and shows us that the military victory was not Teva, but it was Nase, and that HaKadosh gives us the strength to constantly go again and try again and over and over until we're able to make sure to drive out the enemy from our midst, and that's what the nace of Hashemin is. I believe that the eighth candle symbolizes Sheva Yipal Tzadik. Seven candles, that's Sheva Yipal. But the eighth night, after we learn from all the extra lightings, the sight of Hanukkah is clear to us to come. Don't stop. Seven nights is great. We have to do the eighth night to show that I got the lesson of the Pach Hashemin. That I might stumble seven times again and again. And I have failed and I will fail. The Pach Yitzhak writes in the, in the letter, he says, I know that you failed and I say that you will fail again. And then he puts in parentheses, and don't worry about it, I'll tip that palisatan. He says, I'm fully aware of the Gemara of Al-Tiftah Belasan. I'm still saying it. A person fails. A person is weak. A person has the eight Sahara that's powerful, more powerful than any other enemy. So it's inevitable that we will lose battles. That's not a question. The question is, after you lose a battle, what do you do? Do you give up? The Chashmainam probably lost plenty of battles over those years. But the Chiddush of the Chashmainam was that they kept going. And they ultimately were able to outlast the great Syrian army until they said, we got to get out of here. Can't win this. Let's go find a different target that we can win. And that's what we could do with our Yetzirah. Just the one caveat is we have to keep understanding the come. The come. I'm going to be able to get up again. I'll get up again. I'll try it again. I'll dust myself off. I'm going to try it again. Yes, last night was a disaster. Let's try it again today. And that's the reason why I believe, or one of the many reasons, why we light a menorah for not seven days, but for eight days. The ability of seven is a miracle, but eight is what we have to respond to the miracle, to endure and to show the Rabbi that we will never give up. We will never stop fighting Bala Mohammed. We give Shabbat Aidah and Aidah to the Rabbanisham Bala Mohammed. Do you give me the power to wage wars against my enemies? Mitzah Shem Hanukkah should be a day of days of, of light.
And the light is the light of Torah, of course, but it's also a light shining brightly on who we are, what makes us tick, and how we go forward with our lives. And if we're able to absorb some of that light of Hanukkah into our lives, and understand that Sheva Yipal Tzadik become, there's an eighth night of Hanukkah, that additional become, after I fall and I say, I can't do this anymore, no, 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 to come, get up again. Hisnari me'af kumi. Shake off the dust, get up. Don't get down. Don't allow the Yitzhahara to put Yish in your mind. That's what every enemy wants. They want to do psychological warfare with you and make you out to be a failure. no. Hain am kelavi yakum. The Svasemes says on the Gemara and Brachis that the Gemara and Brachis tells us that they wanted to be kaiveya in the in Kriyashma, in the parish of Kriyashma that we say every day. A pasuk from Parshas Balak. That's funny pasuk. Hain am kelavi yakum. Pasuk that Bilam says about Klai Yisrael. They're a nation that gets up like a lioness. Kelavi yakum. So Svasemis explains this is what Klai Yisrael is. Klai Yisrael is a nation that does not stop. As much Saras as we have, as much Yisurin as we have, nationally, individually, we suffer greatly, more than any other nation, but become. Hein am kolavi yakum. That was going to be part and parcel of our Krishna. Muna bitachin, hein am kolavi yakum. This is the Yisrael. This is the basic tenet of what it means to be a Yid, that we always try to get up again. And not let what we did yesterday ruin today. Hanukkah teaches us that lesson. The Nesha Mohama, the Pachashemen, the Sheva Yipal Tzadik, the come, the eighth night. And amidst Hashem, we should be strong, we should be valiant, and ultimately we will find that we will be victorious. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a Lichtiger Hanukkah.